You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If you go to China, uh, they're piloting it uh, a few years ago in Shenzhen. So I lived overseas. If you go to Shenzhen... Back in 2017, they already had facial recognition cameras there. So if you jaywalked in Shenzhen, they would immediately detect that and send you a notification. And they would deduct money from your, what they call WeChat account. They, they use two main apps, WeChat and Alipay. So you can actually deduct your money directly from your account. This is four years ago. So this is not like some sort of conspiracy theory. It's not something that's going to happen 10 years into the future. This happened pre-corona in China. And so this system in China that exists, is extremely advanced. They can detect if it's a man or a woman, they can detect, they can guess your age. They can detect what kind of car model it is, who the manufacturer is. This is a sort of technology that we see in all these dystopian sort of films and whatever. And people keep putting it off and thinking that this is something that's going to happen later in my kid's lifetime or my grandkids. It's already here. And if this gets implemented anywhere, especially in a Western nation, it's not going away. Israel is already talking about the fourth shot. Then they're going to be going to herpes, and they're going to ask if you're gay. They're going to be asking if you ate three pizzas this week because it's unhealthy. If you buy certain books in certain countries, your country doesn't like you. You'll lose points in the social credit score system. So this is already the reality of the world in certain places, and we need to be aware of that if we don't want that or if we do. And to be perfectly honest, anybody who wants his vaccine passport, it's a misnomer. It's total control. Everything you do or don't do will be calculated to the point where if they can detect your GPS signal, if you have a phone on you, they can detect who you're hanging out with. Oh, you're hanging out with somebody that said something bad nine years ago on Weibo, okay, like a Chinese equivalent to Facebook or something like that, right? Oh, you lose two points. Oh, you bought Japanese books. You lose five points because you don't like Japan. This is what is going to come here because it's already there. And we're doing that a little bit with contact tracing for COVID, aren't we? So that they can see where you're at and who you're with. The simple reality is, is that the technology that CSIS has and all these big tech corporations, they already know where you are. It's just that they don't want to shock the system too much and admit that they have it. Edward Snowden revealed all this back in 2013. He, he fled to Hong Kong. They wouldn't keep him there. So now he's in Russia. Yeah. But the NSA has all of your information. They know your Google searches from like February 9th, 2004 in a bunker in Colorado. Help me, Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> right, trouble. right. They have all this information. So, but they don't, like in the U.S., they have the Fourth Amendment. They can't, they're not supposed to track you forever, right? So they pretend they don't have it, but they do. Do you support the Chinese people's right to protest? Do you have any reaction to the factory workers that were beaten and detained for protesting COVID lockdowns? Do you regret restricting airdrop access that protesters used to evade surveillance from the Chinese government? Do you think it's problematic to do business with the communist Chinese party when they suppress human rights? Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 509 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, December 3rd, 2022. And in this episode, we have already hit the ground running. Uh, That top of the episode clip was of a young man who I would guess is of Chinese descent talking about the social credit score 
in China. We'll get into that. It's actually going to be a lot of uh, what we cover in this episode. We'll also be picking up where we left off from yesterday's episode concerning what is considered normal. What is normal and how important is it to be normal, so-called normal? Also, too, after that initial clip, if it wasn't clear, there was a short bit of audio of a reporter following Tim Cook, Apple CEO Tim Cook, down a hallway. I don't know where he was at uh, specifically, but he was on Capitol Hill, and so probably he was going to be meeting with lawmakers and discussing Apple and what they're doing and regulations and things like that. But this reporter is following Tim Cook down the hallway as he is surrounded by aides and, uh, you know, probably legal counsel and assistants and folks like that, bodyguard security, asking Tim Cook questions, very pointed, uncomfortable questions that need to be asked and they really need to be answered, uh, which he has no notion of answering to her in that context. Probably doesn't want to answer those questions at all in any context, but definitely not on the spot like that in a situation where he's on his way to meet with regulators and U.S. lawmakers. So that's related, right? That's related to this whole social credit score business from the previous clip. And it's also related to this question of how important reputation should be to us. Is there a good aspect to caring about your reputation? Can it go too far? Can we care too much? Can we care too little? What is the proper importance that we should assign to reputation and what other people think of us or how highly they regard us or how low they might regard us, what might damage our reputation, what might enhance our reputation, what might protect our reputation or the reputation of others. But first of all, before we jump into all of that, (laughs) a few little anecdotes I want to share with you. First among these is the update on The Ring. So I mentioned a few episodes ago, I think it was, maybe a couple, that my wife saved up and bought me a ring, or rather she saved up the cash, and then on our anniversary, or the night that we went out to uh, have dinner to celebrate our 16th anniversary, she gave me this uh, purse that had all this cash and all these coins that she had uh, kind of secreted away over the past year as our kids would take money they had earned doing, you know, uh, lawn care, mowing lawns, raking leaves, cleaning, you know, for people in the neighborhood as they would give her the cash in exchange for her ordering something off of Amazon, let's say, or buying a game online over Steam. She would just take that money and put it in this purse. And so she saved up uh, you know, almost $500 over the course of the past year that way. And she wanted me to buy a new wedding band. Well, it just came in. It came in yesterday and I'm wearing it right now. I've got my original gold band that we bought at Walmart. We bought matching his and hers, simple gold bands at Walmart uh, way back when, before we got married. That's what I have been wearing ever since. And, uh, I've got that setting on my desk right next to me. And it's funny because I measured and everything. And I thought, man, like this ring is too 
big. <laughs> and this is going to be a problem. I don't want to send it back. That's, you know, that's just, it, you know, I, I, I just got it. It looks great. Uh, it's got these little gold flecks in the middle of the Buckeye Burl wood that is, you know, clear coated and highly polished. There's a titanium spine that runs through and then underneath that is the titanium band that gives the whole thing its strength. Very, very light, but also I'm sure, you know, quite strong. I don't want to send this thing back. I want to wear it. But when I first tried it on last night when I got home from work and it had arrived while I was out, I groaned. I'm like, ah, oh, no, it's it's too big. How is it too big? I measured my finger and everything with a little, you know, paper uh, ruler that I printed off. I found it online and I, t- I checked and everything that it was, you know, to scale with a tape measure, you know, okay, this is three inches and this is three inches. Okay, cool. Well, actually, you know, I just, I put it on and it was too big initially. It was really, really loose. And wouldn't you know it, over the course of the evening and this morning too, waking up, uh, something happened and it fits and it's, and it's fine and it's very comfortable. It's not feeling like it's going to just slide right off my finger. And also too, it's not too tight on the other hand. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of what you get when you pay that much more for a good ring is you get that magic, like with, um, the ring of power. If you remember, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, the ring of power, it gets bigger or smaller, depending on the size of the, uh, fingers of the wearer and it can shrink or it can get larger. And, uh, you know, that it's a magic ring. And so maybe that's part of what we got here. There's some some magic uh, to this ring that it shrunk to the size of my finger. Probably not. It's probably what's more likely is that actually, for 16 years, I've been wearing a gold band that, you know, before I got married and my wife started feeding me really good home cooking, and I started eating the leftovers for all these kids. Um, you know, before that, I had smaller fingers. I had, you know skinnier, uh, uh, leaner fingers. And now I've got bigger fingers. I've got bigger hands. I've, you know, got more flesh on my bones and that simple gold band from 16 years ago has been too small. That, that is, I think probably what it actually is. And, you know, it's, it's no mystery to me that that, uh, would be the case. You know, it's not a surprise, I guess is, is, uh, what I should say. Because anytime I've had to take that ring off, you know, to clean my hands or something like that, if I get something under there in between the ring and my finger, or kind of just around the edges, there's always like an indentation where the skin that was under the ring is just kind of like pinched and, you know, it, it doesn't just snap back, if you will. Well, you give a even or a morning to let your finger uh, kind of breathe again. And maybe just maybe it gets to the right size. And uh, I, th- I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened. There's probably some symbolic significance to that, which I could draw out into a really uh, uh, you know poignant lesson on marriage and life and 
<laughs> uh, I'll have to get back to you on that when when it comes to me. Um, but in other news, in other news, we had biblical training group last night, and that was part of why I just, I, you know, I I opened up the box at, when I got home, pulled the ring out, and I'm like, oh, this looks great. Put it on my finger, I groaned, and then I'm just kind of like, well, okay, I don't have time to deal with this right now. We got to get ready for hosting biblical training group. It's a Friday night, and I need to go and you know type up a set of questions to discuss and consider in relation to this week's lecture, which, uh, as you will know if you have been listening for several weeks and I've been talking about Biblical Training Group, biblicaltraining.org is the website, free seminary-level classes that you can take online at your own pace. There's quizzes, there's documentation and handouts that you can print and things like that. Really, really good stuff. And our family is hosting weekly when we're not sick and when it's not Thanksgiving, a guide to Christian theology taught by Gary Brashears. And lecture six, which was this week's lecture, was the names of God. Who is this God and how do we call him or what do we call him or how do we refer to him? And also, what is the significance of his name? And so we had a, actually, I think, a really, really good discussion surrounding this. It seems like it's a fairly simple thing, and yet it's a very important thing. Names are a very intensely personal thing. You can't hardly get any more personal than to know someone's name and to call them by it. Or you you can barely get any ruder or more offensive than I myself often am uh, guilty of being, which is when you call somebody the wrong name. And I routinely do this, and it's not on purpose. It's not intentional. It's not like the, uh, you know, Parks and Rec bit <laughs> where, where, you know, I, and I'll, I'll just play it for you because it's fantastic, uh, where you intentionally call somebody the wrong name to create distance. But uh, actually, come to think of it, if you haven't seen this one, here is Ron Swanson explaining what he does when people get a little too cozy for his liking. When people get too chummy with me, I like to call them by the wrong name to let them know I don't really care about them. So that is, that's not what I do, or at least that's not what I mean to do. That I, I probably am sending those signals, and uh, I, I don't mean to. I apologize genuinely if I call you the wrong name. But we don't want to call God the wrong name. We definitely don't want that. And also, we don't want to be flippant when we refer to God by name. And there's a lot to unpack as far as <clears throat> some of the tradition concerning keeping the third commandment, which is thou shalt not use the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's a long tradition in Judaism, and then it's been picked up, and uh, there's been some deference towards that among many Christians, I think uh, misguidedly, mistakenly, to replace and substitute the name of God in the Old Testament Hebrew with uh, Lord, with all capital Lord. If you look in your English Bibles and you come across Lord in all caps, that is actually a substitute. It's a stand-in. It's a deference to a tradition of not writing and, by extension, not saying out loud when you're reading the name of God, lest we say it in vain or use it in vain. We don't want to do that. Well, we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to use God's name in vain, 
But that's not what it is when you use God's name appropriately. There's a lot of power in the name of God. God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses has just asked, who will I say has sent me? Because God has told Moses from the burning bush, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses has this very, I think, practical question. Um, who shall I say sent me? <laughs> what, do, what do I uh, call you properly? And God's answer is, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. That's a really, really big deal. So God does want us to use his name but he wants us to use it in a reverential, respectful way. It's good for us. We can't harm him if we use it in an inappropriate way, but we do harm ourselves and we can also harm those around us by our bad example if we're being flippant in the way that we talk about God, in the way that we refer to him. We're being flippant and glib and irreverent and selfish. Uh, you know, we, we can harm others and ourselves by rejecting an appropriate fear and respect and reverence for God and an appreciation of his holiness, of his power, of his majesty, of his godness, of his being God in relation to our not being God, our being created in his image. That's an important distinction we've got to draw. But when we use God's name appropriately, there's a lot of power in that. Think of Proverbs 18.10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. That's a phenomenal promise that the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. So you think about calling on the name of Yahweh. And this isn't some kind of a, you know, rubbing a lamp and the genie comes out and grants you three wishes sort of a thing. It's not that. And we dare not think of God in that way because that is a role reversal. That is blurring uh, the distinction that is appropriate between our creator and we, the created. He does not do our bidding, but he will hear us when we call on his name. We call on his name and there is safety there because we can trust that God, our God is a mighty and powerful God and that he's faithful and he's true. If he has promised things, and those promises apply to us, well then, we do well to remind ourselves and others of the promises of God and the character of God. And think of this, think of this, Psalm 106, 8, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. For his namesake, this wonderful phrase that's cropping up again and again when you read the Old Testament, means that God is doing something because his reputation, his faithfulness, his character requires that. He can do no other because this is what is consistent with his being the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does things. He saves his people. He keeps his promises. He intervenes in mighty, wonderful ways for his namesake. And our making note of how he can be relied on to act because of what he has acted on in the past and how he's acted in the past, what he's promised in the past, our making note of that and referring to it, reminding ourselves and those around us of that is very, very powerful 
because God is uh, ultimately and infinitely powerful. But speaking of names, right? Speaking of names and speaking of using the right names, what is the value of a good name? And, and what does it mean to have a good name? God obviously does things for his namesake because he has a good name and he, for our sake, protects his good name, I think, more than for his sake, but he's also jealous for his glory. And so there's more to it than just his, you know, doing it for our sake. What does it mean for us to have a good name? And how important should that be to us? And dovetailing off of our episode from yesterday, talking about normalcy, how does our having a good name work when what is considered normal or routine or common or typical or average in our context is increasingly uh, disconnected from what God says is good and true and right and just and fair and reasonable. If there is more rebellion and more irreverence and if more godlessness and more sin and more wickedness and more selfishness in our cultural context, in our moment in history, at this time, at this place, what does it mean to have a good name? And also, too, how do we get that good name? Now, there, it, there has to be some kind of a relationship between us having a good name, having a good reputation, and taking note of what is considered normal, what is typical, what is average, what are most other people doing, saying, believing, uh, you know, what, what, what do they value, right? What do they recognize as good or better or worthwhile or honorable? Do consider 2 Corinthians 8, 20 to 21, Paul writing this letter to the church at Corinth. It's not the only one. Obviously, I do believe there's a third letter that we don't have, that we don't uh, know what happened to, but we have this one. And he says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, right? Not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Actually, before we <laughs> before we delve into that further, let me unpack. For the interest of uh, clarity and my having a good name, the idea of there being a third epistle, you know, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, uh, it is not regarded in the Western church as canonical, uh, in part because there are questions as to its authenticity. Is it actually Paul? Is this actually Paul writing to the church at Corinth? Uh, some have included it as apocryphal. Some uh, minor church traditions have said, yes, we think this is legitimate. But the mainstay in the tradition of the Western church is, no, the, the third epistle to uh, the Corinthians was not actually Genuine. The, the one that we have, anyway, the manuscript that we have that has come down to us, uh, we don't think is legit. But anyway, <clears throat> what is Paul getting at here when he says, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man? Well, for one, this is a rather opposite sentiment to only God can judge me. I mean, in some sense, yeah, only God can 
ultimately judge you, but everybody else is going to give it their best try. Everybody's going to take a crack at it and you will be judged, right? You, you will be judged by a jury of your peers, whether formally or informally, and whatever the verdict is. You know, the, the judgment might be a good one, and it might be that, as Paul is talking about the way that they have uh, taken the course that they have and administered the gift, you know, they, they want that good judgment. They want to have a favorable ruling, a favorable verdict, even if it's an informal one, in the sight of man. Not just in the Lord's sight, also in the sight of man. And so there is an importance that is biblical, that is uh, it, it is godly, it is honorable, it is wise, and that we do well to take note of. How much should we care? And how do we care? Sometimes that gets tricky to answer, uh, particularly when men are promised by our Lord and Savior to say all manner of evil against us for his name's sake just by virtue of not doing a bad thing, doing a good thing in following Christ. He says, they hated me. The world hated me. How much more so is it going to hate you as well? A servant is not above his master. So if the world is hostile to God, if the world is hostile to the things of God, if the world is hostile to, in particular, the exclusive claims of the Christian faith, well then, you will have people say ugly, mean, untrue, uh, hurtful things about you and to you. But that doesn't mean that you just throw caution to the wind. It doesn't mean you hold in contempt everyone's opinion. It doesn't mean that, uh, I'll just use this word because it's come up in some private conversation this past week. It doesn't mean that you totally disregard optics. And it's not the case. And, And I want to I want to talk about this in a general way and not give away a a private conversation I was having uh, this week with someone I know who objected, right? There was some disagreement between us as to how important optics should be. Should they be important at all? Uh, I had made some reference to the optics of a certain situation and what should be done in relation to it. And that came back you know, uh, sometime later in a negative light, as in I was not thought well of by this person for having mentioned optics, the optics of failing to act or not acting in a timely manner uh, with regards to a certain situation. Well, then we get to talking about it, it comes up again. And I am told that my mentioning optics put a bad taste in their mouth, right? They, they just really did not like that. And their interpretation of my mentioning optics as a factor of consideration, their interpretation of that was that that's all I care about, right? That that, if I mention it at all, if I say that's a factor, then therefore I'm saying that's all that really matters. Everything else, totally unimportant. Not at all what I'm saying. But it is important because a good reputation feeds directly into good relationships. A good reputation is very closely related to being trusted 
and being able to cooperate and work together with other people and what they will expect. You're, you're managing expectations when you build a brand. So for instance, for example, my wife and our daughter, uh, they've been recently playing with this tool called the Cricut. The Cricut Maker 3, I think, is the specific model if you're interested. It's a few hundred dollars to get one, but through my tech high, my tech high, three words, not some weird, uh, you know, Japanese, uh, you know, business optimization <laughs> paradigm or, or whatever. Uh, no, my tech high, it's a program that we're signed up for as homeschoolers in the state of Colorado. It's not available everywhere, but it is available in some states like Colorado. Uh, we were able to get this cricket maker for Evelyn because it's technology, right? My tech high is trying to encourage and facilitate and invest in kids, uh, school-age kids in states like Colorado, learning science, technology, engineering, and math. And in our particular case, we got this cricket, and it's this machine that you can sync up with your smartphone or you can plug it into your computer and you can make designs and then the cricket will cut those designs out of various uh, materials. For instance, vinyl, for instance, uh, leather, for instance, paper. And so you can use this cricket to cut out, let's say, for instance, a logo for a podcast. And so my wife did. She and our daughter worked together and they were able to take my logo for the podcast and put it through the Cricut and print out vinyl that then they stuck to a onesie for Andrew, which is great. <laughs> and also uh, a, a t-shirt, you know, plain black t-shirt for me. And so there's this brand, right? There's this, this logo and it says the Garrett Ashley Mullet show. I want to talk about everything. And for anybody who's familiar with this podcast, if they see me wearing that t-shirt, all of a sudden they're going to have certain expectations that are managed differently. And it's going to change their impression of me. It's going to change the way that they interact with me on some level versus let's say if I'm wearing a wife beater t-shirt or if I'm wearing a, uh, uh, you know, a button down shirt or, or a three piece suit or a, you know, fill in the blank. If I'm wearing a hoodie, versus uh, a very, very nice polo. It's going to change the way that people perceive me. And I'm managing expectations, whether I'm doing that very intentionally or not, by building a brand, right? By building a reputation. And insofar as a person needs to have a reputation for integrity, your integrity is also of a, a certain kind, Right, it, you know, you can have integrity, and you can absolutely wear a sweatshirt all the time. You can absolutely have integrity because that's who you are. Right, you are the laid-back, easygoing, salt of the earth, sawdust in your beard guy who goes out and uh, you know does a project in the backyard with the kids, working with your hands. You know, like that's that can be absolutely a mark of integrity if that's who you really are. Or you can put on a three-piece suit and go to the office and go to a meeting and get in front of clients and managers and executives 
And you're very professional. You're very well-spoken. You're very clear. You're very courteous. You're very polite. You're very considerate. And that can be a mark of integrity if that's who you really are. Well, so also with regards to even just your name, right? Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. A good name here closely paralleled with favor. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I mention that? Because it is wise to get, so long as you can do so without compromising God's favor, to get favor with your fellow man. That, that's wise. There are a lot of terms that we use to describe people going about this, you know, some legitimate ways and some questionable and some just downright wrong. Charming, right? Somebody can be charming. It can be delightful. They can be engaging. We can say, oh, they have a really good sense of humor. Oh, they're just so easy to talk to. Uh, oh, I just, I really appreciate when I'm interacting with them. They're such a good listener, right? They're so interested in me as a person. All of that helps you to accumulate favor because people want to be around you and they want to have a relationship with you and they want to work together with you. They want to cooperate. They want to collaborate. All of that not just happens or doesn't happen, but it happens in a particular way based on how you've gone about building your reputation, your brand, and more to the point, and this really is the point, managing the expectations of other people. This is why it's not just a matter of telling the truth versus lying, per se, strictly speaking. It's also a question of, are we desiring the good of the other person? Do we desire their good? Do we want them to do well? If we want them to do well, then we will help them to apprehend reality so that they make beneficial choices in relation to opportunities, threats, strengths, weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not just <laughs> that that's not just a, a matter of, you know, I tell you, hey, there's a, a really great sale on right now on uh, ground beef at the grocery store. You should go check it out. No, no. This this goes into every intonation of words, our pauses when we're speaking. This goes into everything, everything that we do, everything that we don't do, everything that we say, everything that we don't say, everything about who we are by God's grace and what opportunities we have to interact with each other, to be seen, to be heard, is to influence in some way. There's just no getting around it. And our choice is to be intentional about it, to recognize the influence for good or for ill that we're having on people under our care, people who are working with us, people who are adjacent to us, people who will be affected by our decisions. We can be intentional about that or we can be careless. If we're careless, well then, I'm sorry, but it, there are consequences. There are consequences to carelessness that erode confidence, trust, the desire 
or enthusiasm when it comes to collaborating with us, cooperating with us, working together with us. There are consequences on the other hand as well if we are considerate, if we're circumspect, if we are virtuous, if we do what we say we're going to do, we say what we're going to do, and then we follow through with it. If there's consistency, right? Now, all of that, all of that can also be taken too far. So the social credit score business, for instance, I think is a highly manipulative, nefarious way of exploiting what at its root is a legitimate and inescapable factor in our motivations. So the social credit score is you do a good deed or what we say is a good deed, you will be rewarded. You will get favorable terms on your mortgage. You will get to fly first class. You will get this job at the prestigious, uh, you know, consulting firm, you know, fill in the blank. You do good deeds, your score will go up just like a, you know, credit score that we would be more familiar with here in the U.S., like your Experian, TransUnion, Equifax credit score, just like that. But we're going to be more comprehensive, not just did you miss a payment? What's your you know, balance to credit ratio? What's your income level? No, no. We're going to be more comprehensive. Do you recycle? Do you have solar panels on your house? Do you drive an electric vehicle? Do you get your posts flagged for misinformation, disinformation, malinformation on Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth? Do you have a history of saying things that are regarded as transphobic, homophobic, bigoted towards people of other religions, people of other nationalities? Are you uh, a gun owner, right? What's your stance on abortion? What's your stance on climate change? What have you gone on the record as saying? Now, we're going to take all those things. Now, this is the social credit score thing. This is the ESG scores. Uh, I believe that's environmental safety and government or social and government, maybe. We're going to take ESG scores and social credit scores Chinese style, and we're going to exploit what is a, on some level, inescapable and normal and legitimate factor of your motivations. Namely, what will other people think of me if I do X, Y, and Z? Vis-a-vis 2 Corinthians 8, 20 to 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We're going to exploit that insofar as that's good, honorable, right, proper, decent. We're going to exploit that. And if you want to maintain a good name, Anywhere in the world, if this goes global, anywhere in the world, you will not express wrong think, wrong speak regarding these various issues, regarding, let's say, sex education for children. You know, there's a a question that Ron DeSantis was recently asked by Tucker Carlson because Disney, they've lost a lot of money. So they replaced their former CEO with the even more former CEO, who is now their current CEO again. Bob Iger's back at the helm again. 
And Bob Iger is asked about how he plans to lead the company differently, given some of the challenges, given some of the upsets that have rocked Disney here the past year or few years. Take a listen, and then I want to want to loop this into our consideration of what's in a name, what's in a reputation. So one of the companies was benefiting a lot from the government, the government of the state of Florida, actually, was Disney. You you changed that. So they just switched CEOs because of that, because of what you did. The new CEO was the old CEO, Bob Iger, and he sold a town hall for employees. And he said he regretted that Disney had fought with your administration over a bill that you backed that banned teachers from talking to kindergartners about sex. So then Disney's response led Florida state legislatures to strip, as you know, of course, because you backed it, Disney of its special status. Here's what Iger said today. I was sorry to see us um, uh, dragged into that battle. Um, And I have no idea exactly what its ramifications are in terms of um, the business itself. Um, What I can say is the state of Florida has been important to us for a long time, and we have been very important to the state of Florida. That is something I'm extremely mindful of and will articulate if I get the chance. How do you you respond to that? He's talking about you. We didn't drag them in, Tucker. They went in on their own and not only opposed the bill, they threatened to get it repealed. These are parents' rights, important policies in our state that are very popular. And so they brought this on themselves. All we did was stand up for what's right. And yes, they're a big, powerful company, but you know what? We stand up for our folks, and I don't care what a Burbank-based California company says about our laws. Okay, so notice a few things that are in the mix here. One, there's a reputation of Bob Iger. That's why he's back at the helm again. He was the CEO formerly. Now he's the CEO again. For two, there's the reputation of Disney. Disney, when I was a kid, had, at least to my knowledge, a reputation for making films like Pinocchio and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and The Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And so far, as those classics uh, went, yes, I know there are some scandalous and uh, licentious perverted things that are alleged to have been slipped in by, let's say, illustrators. You know, the the golden age of Disney, some of the artists slipped in some uh, innuendo and some imagery that was, uh, you know, uh, shall we say, suspicious that maybe more was going on in the House of Mouse from the very beginning than, uh, you know, we realized. And now we, in hindsight, look at what they're peddling or what they're promoting or what they're um, you know, championing or, or opposing in the state of Florida, for instance. And we say, ah, oh, okay, maybe this has been there a long time. But the reputation of Disney up until, I would say, the past 15, 20 years was fairly clean, fairly family-friendly. By and large, you had little pockets here and there who said, ah, no, this is, I know, I don't want my kids watching that. And they were typically those people then, by virtue of their deciding to not let their kids watch Disney movies, uh, they developed their own reputation, right? And so, you know, where do where does it end, right? Everybody's got a reputation. Everybody gets a, a little bit of uh, a chance to create certain impressions about what they are for and what they're against and what they're about. Disney's got a reputation. Then comes legislation being proposed in the state of Florida to 
ban graphic, radical sex education in Florida's public schools, Disney leverages not just their reputation, but yes, their reputation for being family-friendly on behalf of sex education, comprehensive sex education, more to the point, gender theory being taught in Florida public schools, and they threaten the state of Florida with reprisals. Essentially, not just to the reputation of the state of Florida or the Republican primarily, politicians in the state of Florida, but also economic repercussions. We will decide to not do certain things that would be profitable economically for the state of Florida. If you follow through with this, you'd better not. Don't do it. Don't make us hurt you. And then (laughs) uh, through various media outlets, a spin is put on the legislation that it's called the Don't Say Gay Bill. Because that's going to change the reputation of the legislation. It's going to change the reputation of the state of Florida. It's going to change the reputation of the Republican lawmakers and government officials in particular in the state of Florida. And there's an effort to spin their reputation in such a way that you can then call them homophobic. And then you can call them ignorant and repressive and authoritarian and uh, backwards and on the wrong side of history and all these kinds of things that you don't necessarily want to be called, even if they are baseless smears. You don't necessarily want to be called that because it's a way of basically trying to convince people to not cooperate with you, to not collaborate with you, to not have a relationship with you. It's an effort at giving a bad name, right? So even what we call the legislation, what was it actually called? Who knows? Because what stuck, what stuck was the Don't Say Gay Bill. So let's give it a bad name and then people will oppose it and they won't vote for it. But then it doesn't stop there, right? Because a an undue concern for a bad name on those terms with only those factors considered, the economic repercussions of standing up to Disney and saying, we're going to do this thing anyways, even though you don't want us to, it is not all that Republican lawmakers and Republican government officials like uh, duly elected twice Florida Governor Ron DeSantis brought into their consideration. Now you've got Republican lawmakers and the Republican governor of Florida making a choice to not just pass the legislation anyways, but also to take another look at the special relationship that the Disney company has with the state of Florida and has had for 50 plus years. Hey, let's take a look at you being kind of an autonomous zone in Florida, having a special uh, tax exempt uh, you know, district or plot of land, or you know, you, you, let's take a look at how we've been uh, relating to you guys. And uh, maybe let's scale that back because it turns out we're not just concerned about money. Whoa, hey, what just happened, right? What just happened? The reputation of Republicans in the state of Florida just shifted radically from only caring about big business and making money and tax revenue and wealth and economic prosperity. It just shifted radically to 
when we have to make a choice between protecting our children and the morality and the virtue of our state, the reputation of our state, when we have to make a choice between that and whatever tax monies or uh, you know revenue generation we might miss out on, if we do what we believe is right, we're going to choose to protect our children and our virtue and our reputation for being a, a moral, upstanding uh, community and place and people, right? The, the people of Florida are a people. And we as a people value our children and their integrity and their souls more than we do your money, Walt Disney, your power. We don't fear you. In, in some sense, we fear God more than we fear you and what you can do uh, towards us. So, so there's all these reputations, right? There's all these reputations that are in the mix here. And what is done and what is said manages those expectations. And that's what we mean when we talk about a name, a good name versus, you know, on the other hand, you could have a bad name. And increasingly, this is why <laughs> Disney is hurting so much financially. Increasingly, Disney has a bad name because they've made bad choices, because they've made bad value judgments. And increasingly, the flip side is you have, let's say, Ron DeSantis developing a good name. There's a lot of talk about this person who we know as Ron DeSantis running for president of the United States in 2024. He's just come out with a biography or an autobiography, I believe it is. And so then even more so, people are saying, oh, is he going to run? Like That seems like that could be a preliminary step to running for president. He hasn't announced yet, but there's a lot of people who want him to. I think there's a lot of folks, you know, independent in the middle, undecided, Republican, Democrat typically, who all alike would prefer his government, his being the one, uh, you know, given a mandate to form a government, uh, to form a cabinet, to have an administration, to be at the White House for four to eight years over and against, for one, former President uh, Donald Trump, and for two, current President Joe Biden. Donald Trump also, here's here's another way we can go with this. Donald Trump, not just to be political uh, only, Donald Trump has a good name, you might say, with a certain very hard core of Americans. He has a very, very bad name with a lot of other Americans on all sides of the political spectrum. He has a very bad name with people who care a lot about discipline and restraint and having good morals and treating people uh, you know, with, with dignity. You know, even if you disagree with him, having civil discourse. Donald Trump has a bad name for having been rude and uncouth and sometimes just flagrantly dishonest when he gets into spats with people and malicious when he gets into conflict with people very, very publicly, mocking them, putting them down, marginalizing them, saying all kinds of untoward things about them to try and manage their name, to give them bad names. He literally gives them nicknames. That's one of the things that he does. He literally gives them nicknames as a way of trying to manage our expectations of those people to, you know, either A, 
uh, encourage us to want to work with them or collaborate or vote for them or listen to them or on the flip side to not to, to not do any of those things. Also, too, uh, consider Joe Biden. Consider the Biden last name and all of these revelations from uh, the release of documents through journalists uh, regarding how Twitter, here's another company that has a reputation, that has a name that can be either sullied or it can be enhanced and we can have all kinds of connotations and expectations when we hear the name Twitter. There are revelations that are coming out yesterday and uh, more today are expected over the weekend are expected as to what the internal dialogue was among executives, legal counsel, et cetera, et cetera, at Twitter in 2020 when the decision was made to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story from the New York Post. Those revelations, direct quotes, conversation transcripts back and forth as the decision was being made are casting the Biden team in a very negative light, casting the Twitter team in a very negative light. And what's in a name, right? What's in a name? One, in hindsight, as far as who Twitter has been, what they've been about, what they've been doing, what the Biden uh, administration before that, the Biden campaign was asking to have done. Also, two, getting right down to <laughs> the, uh, the, the you know the, the substance of the uh, reporting by the New York Post that was suppressed. What was our impression of Biden and the Biden family and Biden's candidacy for president? What was that going to suffer? If the story had not been suppressed, that's why it was suppressed was because it was going to damage his reputation right before people vote. After people have made their votes, cast their votes, well, then, okay. Now, you know, two years later, now that the Democrats are ready to ditch Biden because he's just too much of a liability, now they say, okay, well, yeah, it does look like that is a legit story. But you see how this works, right? Once the people have already made their decisions and now they're stuck legally, procedurally, then who cares, right? Who cares about the reputation, the name, this person's disposable. But when it is a legitimately good reputation that someone has, this is also why, you know, not just A, the third commandment is to not use the name of the Lord our God in vain because something happens there. You know, there's a, there's a, a shift away from right belief, right relationship with God um, but also, too, there's a missing out on all of the blessings that come with calling on the name of the Lord in an appropriate way. Uh, also, too, this is why another one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why does that matter? Because what you're doing there is you are damaging their name. You are damaging their reputation. You are damaging their relationships with other people that they need in order to have a good life, in order to work, in order to have harmony, in order to have friendships, in order to have companionship, in order to live, to slander their good name, 
is to damage their ability to collaborate, cooperate, and prosper. And God says, don't do that. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, he doesn't say, don't ever say anything bad about your neighbor. No, if your neighbor has done bad things, if he's broken all the other commandments, and you say, hey, listen, this guy's a murderer, he's a thief, he's an adulterer, he's a blasphemer, he doesn't keep the Sabbath, he doesn't, you know, like if you're going down the line and these are all true statements about your neighbor, well then, it's regrettable, it's unfortunate, but what you are told expressly, explicitly not to do is to bear false witness against your neighbor, to speak evil of them that is not true, just to damage them, just to harm them, just to hurt them. Because what you're doing there is you are stealing from them. Dennis Prager has said, the way he's characterized it, and I think of this often, that to slander somebody is the rape of a name. To bear false witness against someone is the rape of a name. And that is to say you are harming their uh, ability to be legitimately respected and honored and trusted right now this is different again i mean i i know i'm probably belaboring the point a little bit but i really want to emphasize how distinct from just being normal that is now i was listening to michael knowles's program his latest episode yesterday and he was talking about kanye west and these really regrettable interviews that he did with alex jones alex jones has a reputation of course and Tim Poole, who also has a reputation, but he's got a different, I, th- I would say he's got a better name than Alex Jones. Not that that's very difficult, but Kanye West has these interviews. And one theory behind why he is saying some of the crazy things that he's saying is that he is trying to just burn his whole life down because he's lost his family. He's lost a lot. He's lost his sponsorships. and He just does not care anymore. He's angry and he's throwing a tantrum and he's just burning his name down. He's burning his reputation down. He does not care, right? It's a a tantrum of sorts. It's not a nervous breakdown. It's a, I don't care anymore what anyone thinks about me. And I'm going to intentionally say the most outrageous, crazy thing because I have such contempt for you people and what you think of me. Well, that's, that's unfortunate. That's, that's tragic even like that. That is heartbreaking that that is a plausible theory and that we even are theorizing about his situation at all. But Michael Knowles, he said something that, um, you know, I, I, I I can find common ground with, I can agree with, uh, the core of, but one of the things he said was that, we need to not be afraid to be normal. It's okay to be normal. You don't need to be weird and bizarre and out there and outrageous. You know, I, I agree with that. I agree that we don't we don't do ourselves any favor by just being as wild and crazy and attention grabbing as possible, particularly if that speaks to a lack of integrity. That's not who we really are. We're posing, we're pretending to be a certain way. We don't need to be outrageous for shock value, just to get people to click on our links, like our posts, 
listen to our podcast, for instance, uh, you know, read our blog posts, read our Facebook posts, read our tweets. You know, don't don't be just wild and crazy and just say whatever. And and don't be so afraid to be normal. Now, when he says normal, I know what he means. I know he means normal in the rear view, uh, the rear view mirror. And unfortunately, like this would be my pushback, I guess, or, or maybe uh, arguing the point a little bit. Unfortunately, normal is a sliding scale. To be normal is to grade on a curve because normal is relative. Morality, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, that is not a sliding scale. That is not subjective. That does not change. But the relationship of the community based on leadership, based on influences, based on choices, the relationship of our society, the American people, or the people of your state, your city, your town, your county, your neighborhood, to goodness and truth and beauty, that changes every day, little by little, incrementally. You know, it's kind of like what I was saying here recently about every cell in our bodies being replaced over the course of seven years. That's something I've heard and read several times in several places over the years. I don't know that that's true, but I assume that it's true because I've heard it so often. Well, if that is true, if it is true that every cell in your body has been replaced over the course of seven years, I would say, I don't know what the time frame is or the scale uh, would change like for a community. But if each one of us individually is a new person, is a different person every seven years, well, then all of us together as a community, as a society, are a new society every seven years. And I think it's not for no reason that there were also, for one, uh, Sabbath rest periods that God commanded for Israel. Maybe this is a factor. Every seven days, something is happening in you that you have got to rest and be intentional about before God and man out of reverence for God. Maybe that's a factor. The year of Jubilee also is in relation to this factor of seven. The uh, Wikipedia article, I'll just read a little bit of this for you for context. In case you're not terribly familiar with the year of Jubilee or the Jubilee, is the year, according to Wikipedia, at the end of seven cycles of Shemitah or sabbatical years, and according to biblical regulations, had a special impact on the ownership and management of land in the land of Israel. According to the book of Leviticus, Hebrew slaves and prisoners would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be particularly manifest. Rabbinical literature mentions a dispute between the sages and Rabbi Yehuda over whether it was the 49th year, the last year of seven sabbatical cycles, referred to as the Sabbath's Sabbath, or whether it was the following 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the year of release, deals largely with land property and property rights. The biblical rules concerning sabbatical years are still observed by many religious Jews in Israel, but the regulations for the Jubilee year have not been observed for many centuries. According to the post-exile rabbinic interpretation of Torah, observance of Jubilee only applied when the Jewish people live in the land of Israel according to their tribes. Thus, 
with the exile of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, about 600 BCE, Jubilee has not been applicable. Well, okay, I guess. If you say so, just ignore it. Um, nevertheless, there's a significance here. There's a significance to 7 times 7, which would be 49. 7 times 7. What is the answer that Jesus gives also to consider this? What is the answer that Jesus gives when he's asked about what if my brother sins against me seven times? Well, for one, Luke 17, 3 through 4 in the ESV, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, that's a curious thing. Seven times. Why seven? Right? Why seven? Well, for one thing, seven is a number of completion, right? You completely are committed to forgiveness. Also, too, there's a cyclical aspect here. There's a little bit of a mystery to it. I don't fully understand. My understanding of this is not complete. Uh, but there, I know I know that completeness and wholeness is a factor. Also, too, I just want to point out with regards to money and financial incentives and business and commerce and trade and the economy, this ESG business, I mean, this is really, this is of a piece with the social credit scores thing uh, that the young Chinese man was explaining at the top of the episode. This is of a piece with the iPhone that a lot of you have in your pockets or on your desk or on your dresser. This is of a piece with what's coming down the pike and what we need to think rightly about, that we would assign the proper importance, the proper value, the proper priority to reputation before outsiders. Thessalonians talks about this. Rather, Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. Why? Because then you will behave properly towards outsiders, according to the Berean Standard Bible. According to the ESV, you will be dependent on no one. So this is an interesting thing that I think has to frame our view of reputation and having a good one and optics, if you will, and having a good name that there's two sides here to the coin. One, walk properly before outsiders. Why? Because that honors the Lord and it's good for them. It's good for them Two, be dependent on no one. Why? Because that's good for you. Because then you don't get into situations like the state of Florida versus Walt Disney Company or, uh, you know, I think it's BlackRock is this investment firm that, you know, one of a few that uh, collectively they own like 20% of publicly traded corporations and they're on board with this ESG business with manipulating companies, corporations, by extension, their employees, by extension, the world towards socialism, towards combating climate change, towards radical wealth redistribution, towards 
embracing gender theory, critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, abolishing capitalism. That's just the beginning. Really, we have to think not just is capitalism as we think of it, as we know it, a good thing? Does it have a good name? Is capitalism a good name? We also have to be thinking, okay, or what, right? Or what? What do you want instead? Oh, socialism. Ah, okay. Wait a second. Capitalism's terrible until you meet socialism. And then you realize, well, okay, maybe capitalism's not so bad. <laughs> it's not so bad. Capitalism needs a Christian conscience. No doubt about it. No question. And not in a mercenary appearances only way. That's where also to optics, concern about optics can get just downright manipulative because then you start doing the Machiavelli thing and you start just playing to the crowd and pretending it virtue, even though it's not real at all. God knows the difference. Fear God, man. But you have a reputation now. If you say, I am against these things, these are bad. The folks who are proposing these things have a reputation by virtue now of proposing these things, like Klaus Schwab, proposing this whole great reset uh, seizing of opportunity on a global scale. The state of Florida now has a reputation. I say Florida. And something has shifted based on the news that's coming out of Florida in relation to what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. If Florida, for instance, for example, and I think this is a really good look, and I don't think it's the only reason to do it by any means. I think the reason to do it is because it's right. But then one of the benefits, one of the upsides is also you get a good reputation for doing what's right. <laughs> Florida yanks $2 billion from BlackRock. That's uh, yesterday's episode of Tim Cast, Tim Pool's podcast. They're discussing Florida as a state pulling $2 billion of state pension investment funds from BlackRock because BlackRock is trying to use their investment dollars or the lack thereof to motivate corporations to get on board with ESG and combating climate change and promoting the LGBTQ agenda and sexualizing our children and normalizing pedophilia and <laughs> controlling the world conquering the world, essentially, colonizing the world, essentially. A couple more things I want to get to because I just, I don't, I don't have as much time to podcast here lately. So I want to make the most of the time that I do have. A couple more things. Uh, there's a clip I want to play for you that was sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Really, a really, really interesting clip. And you won't have the visuals here, but do look this up and check it out because the visuals do uh, just uh, quite a lot, I think, to drive home what's actually being described here and the reality of it. This is this is real stuff. This is not, you know, fantasy. It's not a made-up story. It's not a video game. It's not a movie. Um, take a listen to this summary of archaeological findings in Mexico City that go back to uh, the Aztecs and pre-Columbian, pre-European, pre-conquistador uh, civilization in the Americas. Conquistadors once wrote of an enormous rack of skulls called Zompantli in the 16th century Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. 
a row of vertical posts connected by crossbeams, threaded with human skulls, flanked on each side by towers of skulls and mortar. The Mexica, the founders of Tenochtitlan, and one cultural group that comprised the Aztecs, thought human sacrifices would feed the gods and ensure the continued existence of the world. For the conquistadors, the skulls evinced the Mexica's barbarism and justified their conquest of the city in 1521. They tore down the Templo Mayor and the Zompantli in front of it, paving over the ruins and building what would become Mexico City. As the centuries passed, historians began to wonder if the Zompantli had ever existed at all. In 2015, researchers discovered a site that would remove any doubts about the Zompantli's existence when they excavated the remains of the rack and one of the towers underneath a colonial period house on the street just north of Mexico City's cathedral. The team dug about 20 test pits, unearthing modern debris, colonial porcelain, and finally, the basalt slabs of a Mexica period floor. As they dug, hundreds of skull fragments began to appear, but they weren't sure that's what they were seeing until they found the post holes. The size and spacing of the holes allowed them to estimate the Zampantli's size. It turned out to be an incredibly imposing rectangular structure, 35 meters long, about 14 meters wide, and an estimated four to five meters tall. They also discovered one of the towers made of skulls and mortar. Over two seasons of excavations, archeologists carefully collected a sample of 180 skulls from the tower, as well as thousands of skull fragments, hoping to learn more about Mexica rituals and the post-mortem treatment of the bodies. Human sacrifice and even zompantlis were relatively common in many Mesoamerican cultures. Cut marks on the skulls leave no doubt they were defleshed after death, and the decapitation technique seemed quite clean and uniform. In earlier studies, analysis of the teeth and bones of skulls unearthed in Templo Mayor suggested that most of the victims were born in various regions of Mesoamerica, but that many had spent significant time in Tenochtitlan before their deaths. Some historical accounts record cases of captive warriors living with the families of their captors for months or years before they were sacrificed. It's details like these that have archaeologists excited, opening the door to possible studies ranging from detailed examinations of sacrificial rituals to the genetic diversity and population diversity of post-classic Mesoamerica. Studying these skulls in such intimate detail helps to tell not only the individual story of each victim offered up to the gods, but also that of the Aztec communities themselves. Okay, so that, by the way, is science.org. There's a story from Lizzie Wade. This is actually a few years old. 2018, June 21st, 2018 is when this was posted. Archaeologists uncover the remains of a giant rack of skulls beneath downtown Mexico City, feeding the gods. Hundreds of skulls reveal massive scale of human sacrifice in Aztec capital. And what I want to draw out for you with regards to the question of normal and the question of uh, being respectable and honorable and, uh, and even to some extent the social credit scores business is this was normal in the context of the Mexica uh, civilization. This was normal in the context of Mesoamerica. This was normal for the Aztecs. You, you don't get skull towers <laughs> with, 
when it's just kind of a one-off thing like, oh yeah, that was weird. Why did we do that? Let's not do that again. No, they, they did this on an industrial scale, making war on their neighbors, taking captives, and then sacrificing these captives to their gods at the top of the pyramids, throwing their bodies down after sacrificing them for all to see. Uh, also, I've read there was cam- cannibalism involved. There was, uh, you know, the priests and their families, they would actually eat uh, the sacrificial victims and such. And there's all kinds of diseases that would come with that if you're doing that on a large scale, if that's how you're feeding your population, not just feeding your gods, but that's how you're feeding your population. And also, what does it do to the character of your people, of your civilization, when, for one, this is how you treat your neighbors. For two, uh, this is how you treat people just in general, at all, ever. Well, the, the conquistadors, they come and, and find themselves in the new world, introduced to something that, you know, it's not totally foreign. The idea of public executions is something that happens in Europe around this time period. And that's happened, you know, all, all over the world. Uh, at various times, let's make an example of this person who has transgressed the law or they have dishonored the king or they've displeased the powers that be. Let's make an example of them. The, the crucifixion, for that matter, the crucifixion was a it was a public execution by the Romans of someone who needed to be made an example of. That's why we're putting them up on a cross on the side of the road. We're lining the roads with crosses of executed criminals, traitors, rebels, people who have displeased the Roman Empire. Don't step out of line or this will be you too. That's what ESG is. That's what the social credit score is. That's what happens if you care too much uh, about what people think of you. Now, you can get a reputation that way. That That is one way to get a reputation is uh, to, to uh, you know publicly execute your enemies. Definitely. Absolutely. Is that the reputation that you want? Well, okay, uh, that's a second question. That's that's a secondary question. Is this the right way to get a reputation, uh, to be offering hundreds or even thousands in a day of captives of your neighbors as sacrifices to your gods? Well, then the conquistadors come, and they come from Europe at a time in European history, and, and more to the point, Iberian Peninsula history. Spain, Portugal, having for some time, having for centuries, been under the rule and occupation of the Muslim uh, Moors, the conquistadors had reconquistad uh, the Iberian Peninsula, Peninsula. They had driven the Moors out and retaken Iberia retaken Spain and Portugal for Christendom. And so now you have so-called, and this is debated, this is disputed, this is scoffed at, of course, in the modern era, but you have ostensibly Christian civilization in Spain and Portugal, where otherwise, previously, for some time, for generations, you had had Muslim domination and Muslim rule. So these Reconquista warriors, as part of the larger goal of having an economic independence for Spain, 
for Portugal, for Europe, for Christendom. They're looking for a alternate route to trading with Asia, with the East Indies, that does not involve, you know, being pirated or uh, extorted or slaved by the Ottoman Empire or by the, the Muslims generally who are in between. They come across the New World. They start interacting with the indigenous peoples here in the New World. And if you are a Spaniard who thinks of yourself as a warrior for God with a mandate to defend Christendom, to advance the kingdom of Christ here on earth, and you come across a civilization that is literally making towers and tall, tall racks of skulls, hundreds and hundreds of skulls in the middle of their capital city as part of their pagan worship of their gods. They're engaging in human sacrifice. And also, too, you start meeting their neighbors and their neighbors are like, hey, listen, <laughs> we, we'd like to work together on a little project uh, overthrowing the Mexica, overthrowing the Aztecs. You know, what What do you do? Do you approach this in a 21st century secular way? Do you start rolling out ESG scores? Do you start trying to implement, uh, you know, social credit scores? Do, do you start saying you've got to get a vaccine passport in order to travel internationally, in order to be a part of the international community, uh, Montezuma? Is that what you do? Or do you say, okay, we've got guns and swords and armor and horses and allies now, apparently. We've got the wherewithal. We've got the military training. We've got the military experience. We've got a military mindset. We've got the Western mindset. We can take these guys. You know, It's not to say that the conquistadors were unqualifyingly uh, the good guys and the heroes of the story, but it is to say it's a little more complicated than what very often it's presented in modern history books as. Uh, so also in North America, so also with uh, a lot of English and Scots migrants to the colonies who then uh, eventually fight for their independence, declare their own independent country in the United States of America to the north. So also here, it's complicated. Uh, read Jefferson's War about the campaign against the Barbary pirates, basically the U.S. Navy, coming to existence out of nothing. A Navy that was no Navy became a Navy and then dealt with the Barbary pirates conclusively. Read about, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Ambrose has got this excellent narrative uh, history of the Lewis and Clark expedition that Jefferson also commissioned. He sent Meriwether Lewis and William Clark West, not just to map, you know, what's out there, you know, where might we be able to expand trade, relationships, diplomacy, settling, but also to establish friendly relations with the Indians. And the Cynic and the Howard Zinn uh, indoctrinated <laughs> 21st century American uh, product of public education will say, oh, yeah. 
friendly relations. That's just code for soften them up so that you can give them smallpox blankets. No, 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 no. It was, I think, I believe it was very genuine, but it was also impossible because not everybody wanted that friendship. And also the tribes being interacted with were not all friends with each other. Very similar, very, very similar to the dynamic between the Spaniards and the Aztecs versus the surrounding peoples. You know, the, the Mexica based in Tenochtitlan versus their neighboring cities who were fed up with being treated this way for hundreds of years. The, the Spaniards' relationship with those peoples and that dynamic, there's already a conflict going on here. You can't be friends with everybody because you, you friend, if you're friends with these guys, those guys are going to hate you. If you're friends with those guys, these guys are going to hate you. The exact same thing played out in North America as the Lewis and Clark expedition is traveling west. You have the Sioux and the Blackfeet feared and hated by their neighbors and immediately hostile to Lewis and Clark and their expedition. But you also have other friendlier and frankly weaker tribes who are tired of getting picked on, tired of getting harassed, tired of getting raided, tired of getting pushed around by the Sioux and the Blackfeet saying, hey, listen, we would like to be friends. <laughs> and, and then you're off to the races because that's all it takes. That, that is all that it takes. And again, again and again, we find reputation comes into play here. These things do not happen in a vacuum that people come to have a good name or a not so good name. And also too, not everything that is said about somebody is true. Sometimes people get a good reputation that they have no right to because we're looking at a very narrow scope of character or a very narrow measure of character. And we're not looking at some other things that are, are really very important to understanding the whole person in light of what is true and what is good. Sometimes people get a bad reputation because there's malice and there is the bearing of false witness against someone's neighbor in a malicious way, in a vainglorious or uh, covetous way. I want this person to be destroyed so that I can come in and get their stuff and take their stuff and that can be my stuff now, right? Now, what does this do for us, right? We're, we're not going to go back in time and change what happened. I don't have a DeLorean. I don't think you do either. We're not going to go back in time and change the outcome of you know, the Spaniards in Mexico City or what we now know as Mexico City. We're not going to go back in time and change the dynamic between those first interactions between the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Lakota Sioux. But what we can do is moving forward, we can learn from these things important lessons that help us to manage our reputation and to uh, Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 8, 20-21, aiming at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man, keeping a watch on the principle at the root of Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now, this is also, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make this just entirely political and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. If you're the state of Florida and you're being told you either give up on the idea of this legislation to protect children or 
we're going to punish you economically. Choose the better thing. Choose a good name. Choose a good name over great riches. If you are in a situation where you can either compromise and you'll have a good social credit score, but you have to say untrue things, you have to do bad things, you have to affirm those who say untrue things and do bad things, or risk potentially getting dinged on your social credit score, but having favor with God, doing what is honorable primarily, first and foremost in the Lord's sight, then secondarily in the sight of men, what you might find is you might actually find you have a good name with honorable people. And that's, you know, if you can't have a good reputation with everybody, you can't make everybody happy, you can't please everybody. Well, then that's where, again, reputation comes into play, where you may not know perfectly everybody's character in every detail, but if you can have a good reputation with people who also are holding good names, it will go well with you. That's wisdom. I believe that pleases the Lord. I believe that is profitable and uh, that is a way to have a good conscience and and a good outcome. But I really do have to run. Uh, I should go. It's a Saturday. Lots of stuff to do today. And yet, one last thing, one one last thing. I'm not going to play this entire video uh, audio for you, but I'll play a little bit of it because this also, very important, uh, and then We'll, we'll we'll unpack it more tomorrow. Just a little bit of a teaser for tomorrow's episode. This is how not to do youth ministry. Take a listen. Dear God, we just invite you in this place tonight, God. Speak to us through your word, God. Just bless our friend Ignatius as he comes and leads us. Ignatius, and tonight we're going to talk about the God of the universe and how he loves each and every one of you with an unquenchable fire. But before we do that, did anybody bring their Bibles tonight? All right, get them out. Let's get those Bibles out. Put them up over your head. That's it. All right, now repeat after me. Say, God's word word is living living and active. active. It is powerful. It is is more then I can deal with at this stage of my life. Good. Put them under your seat. You're not going to need them tonight. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. Uh, the full video is like 10 and a half minutes long. And it, <laughs> it, I, I don't know that it's funny as much as it is sad because it's so it's so accurate to what i have seen in some dark corners of american christendom now i'm thankful uh i i do want to say this i'm i'm very thankful i have not seen this at our church in some of you community uh church there is a genuineness that is not this it's not the like weird 
hipster haircuts, eyeshadow, fog machine. Everything's got to be super amped up and fun because that's the the big idea. Later on in the video, he's asked what you know the secret is to uh, a strong youth ministry, and he's like Xbox 360. <laughs> like that's it, right? Like that, <laughs> and <laughs> um, you know, like. I look at this and I I would say this too is an example of caring too much about reputation or being thought well of or spoken well of at just any old cost whatsoever. The substance of what he says, you know, take your Bibles out, repeat after me, you know, it th- God's word is living and active and too much for me at this point in my life. And so let's just put it away. Whoa, hold on a second. You know, that, what what is it that gets the, the characters like this uh, fictional Ignatius hung up or tripped up? What is it that actually is a lot of their problem? That they are afraid that caring first and foremost about what's honorable in the Lord's sight will be thought of as uncool for these kids. And so we've got to mix in all this other stuff or... We've got to just smuggle in a little bit, just a just a tiny little bit of truth here and there. But these kids, I mean, they they can't handle the word of God being the mainstay, and that's the primary reason for why we're getting together. Let's say on a Wednesday night for a Bible study or for youth group, they can't handle that. They're not going to come. They're not going to show up if we don't lead with you two and. Xbox 360 and Mountain Dew and really killer uh, <laughs> light shows and, and just you know like you know, he uh, he does this other thing which I'll, I'll get into more in our episode tomorrow. He does this thing where he, he draws an analogy from a movie, which isn't a bad thing. I I do that, or maybe it's a bad thing, and I do that. Hopefully that's not the case. But he brings up this scene from. The Dark Knight, where the Joker makes a pencil disappear, and there's no point at all whatsoever to his illustration, except that The Dark Knight is a great movie, right? Batman, The Dark Knight, like it's a, it's a great movie. And uh, anyway, moving on, you know, and and it's like okay, that right there, you're you're trying to be cool, and is that honorable? Is that what Second Corinthians eight twenty through twenty one is getting at and talking about? Is that what Proverbs twenty two one is talking about? Is that what it means to have a good name? No, uh, no, indeed. And uh, I won't give any more away. I do want to talk more about this, particularly with regards to what our expectations are for young people, what we expose them to, how we talk with them, how we talk to them, and how we try to prepare them for adulting in the world that is unfolding before our eyes day after day. That's going to be tomorrow's episode, not today's episode. Today's, I just want to be able to differentiate normal on the one hand, whatever that is, sorry, with respect to Michael Knowles, maybe we need to not just tell people be normal. That's okay to be normal. Let's define what would that have to be? What what would have to be normal for it to be good to be normal really really depends on your context and the company you keep um differentiating that from a proper importance 
regard, consideration of reputation, doing what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, also in the sight of men. But like I said, I'm going to run. I got to go. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.